Hey, good morning. My name's Jerry, and what that kind old woman was typing was about the day that she decided to stop something. Some of you have been here the last couple of weeks. You recognize that uh, little bumper that we've had where essentially she's writing about the story of her life. And that's what this series is about. It's called My Story. And we recognize that every single one of us has a book that is being written about our lives. It's got some chapters that we want to erase. It's got some that perhaps we're proud of, stories we want to tell. And our whole main idea over these last couple of weeks is what decisions are you going to make today that are going to allow you to tell a better story tomorrow? Now, last week, Brian talked about the idea that uh, today I am deciding to start something. How many people made a decision last week that said you're going to start doing something that you weren't doing before? Raise your hand really high like you're going to win a prize. All right, good. Lots of you. Awesome. Well, that's good. And when we decide to start something, there's typically some sort of vacuum in our life that needs to be filled. And we're over here saying, okay, I see this is a need. I'm going to start doing this. And today we're going to talk a little bit about the opposite of that. We're going to talk about something that is there right now. There's some sort of object. There's some sort of barrier. There's some sort of addiction or some sort of affinity, some sort of action that is here. And it is being detrimental to the story that God wants to tell through me. So I need to stop this. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus chapter 18. The book of Exodus chapter 18. 18. That's where we're going to be spending the majority of our time here this morning as we talk about the day that I decided to stop. As we talk about the idea of story, for many of us, we love a good story. And for the vast majority of us, the way that we most often connect with story is by way of movies, Right? I want you to do this for me. On the count of three, I want everybody to verbalize to me loudly what the name of your favorite movie is. Okay? And I'm not talking about like a silly movie. I'm talking about like serious, impacting, heartfelt, life-changing. That might be a little too heavy, but uh, serious movie that you, that you love and that moves you. Okay? On the count of three and do it super loud so I can hear it. One, two, three. Well, I heard Frozen. Frozen impacted somebody deeply. First hour, we had somebody, it happened to be my wife, say the movie Anne of Green Gables. I don't know if, if you've seen the Anne of Green Gables, but very impacting, apparently. Um, but anyway, yeah, we know about movies and we love movies. And there's a few things that I want to share with you about the elements that make a good story that also make a good movie, right? You remember back when you were in English composition or when you were studying literature, short stories, all that stuff in school, and they talked about the different elements. You've got a back, background, a backdrop of characters. You've got a setting. You have a theme, right? And then you've got your main characters and you've got your protagonist, like the hero of the story. And then you've got the antagonist. Right? Somebody who wants to come in and just kind of destroy things. And you've got what they call in literature the conflict. Some big epic conflict that makes for an interesting and riveting story. 
right? And the conflict could be man versus man, it's me against somebody else, or it could be man versus himself, right? Something that you need to overcome in your own life in order to accomplish, or it could be man versus nature, I think was one as well, uh, right? But that whole idea of like, I want something desperately, I wanna overcome, I want to accomplish this, and something is in my way. But the key that I want you to think about this morning as we're talking about living a story that you wanna tell is that whole idea of desire and wanting. Okay, the main character has to want something. Think about some of the movies that I, that I heard uh, outside of Frozen, although I guess that one could fit in here as well. But Lord of the Rings, right? The movie Up. Uh, Braveheart, some of the other ones that maybe we would mention that are in all kinds of top lists of like, these are the greatest movies. Why? Because the main character wants something. Take a movie like Braveheart, for example, right? We've all seen clips of that classic scene on TV where he's riding around on the horse and there's all the farmers of Scotland with their little rakes and their little hoes ready to take on the, the huge army. Right? You remember his speech? What if he got up there and instead of giving the speech that he gave, he gave a different speech. Hey, men of Scotland, sons of Scotland. Please, go back to your homes. Play with your wee ones. Play the bagpipe around the fire and have some shepherd's pie. Hi, there's nothing to see here. I don't know what kind of accent that was, but forgive me. Right, but what if we turned them all away, said, hey, you know what, go enjoy the rest of your days and, uh, you know, farm some tomatoes and, and kind of do your thing. That wouldn't make for a very interesting story at all, right? What makes that story? A man who stood up and, 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 and rallied other people around to fight against tyranny. What was his speech instead? Think about the day that you're going to die. Think about your family. Think about your children. And think about Freedom. He wanted something desperately. And my question to you this morning, as we're talking about the idea of story, is what do you want in your life? So often in America, we find so many people that are living really, really, really small stories. Because the reality is what they really want, what they're thinking about, what they're passionate about are the very small things in life. Man, if I could just get that new car, if I could just get that promotion and that job, if I can just get that vacation, if I can just get that look the way I want to look so that other people will like me and be impressed with me, if I could just have, you know, the respect of other people, if, you know, like all these small little things when the reality is what we're talking about here is God wants to usher you up into something so much grander than our small, little, selfish stories. And so the question that I want to throw out to you here this morning is what does God want you to want? When you talk about a grand cause and a noble cause and something to live for and something to die for, what do you think it is that God would have you want? And it's against that backdrop that we dive in to the story of, uh, of Moses here in Exodus chapter 18. Moses was living a pretty good story. You remember his history. He grew up there in Pharaoh's courts and at the age of 40, he killed an Egyptian and ran off away out into the wilderness. He, uh, he ended up being a shepherd for the next 40 years. So that story at that point was relatively small. 
right? He spent his days uh, kicking up his heels, playing with his grandkids, sipping sweet tea, uh, you know, just as, a, just as a sheep herder. But then on the backside of the mountain of God, we see an incredible, inciting, monumental um, situation where God spoke to him and said, Moses, I've got something bigger for you, man. So much bigger. Do you want to be used by me to be the savior of this people? Do you want to be used by me to be a type, a picture, a shadow of what I'm going to do for my people in leading them out of bondage into the promised land? And of course, we look at Moses and there's some bumps along the way. There's excuses. There's weakness. There's, oh, I can't do it. I'm not capable. I'm not able. And they all work through that. You know, we had kind of a bumpy road. But at this point in the game, Moses is living a pretty good story. I've been used by God. I've seen miracles of God. There's people, we've, we've come out of Egypt. We're here in the wilderness now at this point in the game. But Moses was distracted. Moses was being weighed down. Moses was um, involved in something that he needed to stop. And here in Exodus chapter 18, we get a visit from Jethro. Jethro is a great name. Sounds like something from Anne of Green Gables, perhaps. You know, like in the 1800s, uh, there's gold and then there are hills, you know, like some, that kind of guy. I don't know. But this is Jethro. This is actually Moses' father-in-law. Okay, how many people love to get advice from their in-laws? Anybody like that here? Um, wow, we're getting sensitive here. Okay, we'll stop. But this was Moses' father-in-law, and he had come to visit and to see what was going on with Moses. And we start out where his father-in-law is super happy with him. That's good. All right, let's start reading in, uh, in, in verse 9 and in verse 10. Verse 9, Exodus 18, Jethro rejoiced for all the good the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who's delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. So Jethro saying, Moses, man, way to go. Way to be a leader, way to stand up to Pharaoh, way to be, you know, the, the, the person in charge of this massive humanity and do great things. And Moses is probably feeling pretty good now, right? Father-in-law is pleased with you. That's good. Moses' wife is sitting there next to her father-in-law. She's like, mm-hmm, good job, Moses. You know, she's, he's pleasing the family. But then we see that something changes a little bit. Let's continue reading down in verse 13. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people who stood around Moses from morning till evening. And when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, why is it that you are doing this for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. And when they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another, I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. So what's going on here is Moses is intricately involved in every tiny little dispute that's going on in the entire nation of Israel. He's overmanaging, he's micromanaging, he's being very controlling. And what does Jethro say? Go ahead and read in verse 17. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not 
good. Anybody ever hear that from their in-laws? Jethro saying, Moses, you've got to stop. I see this in your life. Maybe you don't see it. Maybe you uh, are on some sort of pride, arrogant trip, thinking that you need to be the, one, the, the only one that kind of instructs people and helps people out. But Jethro is saying, what you're doing is not good. You have got to stop now because you're hindering what greater story God could tell in your life. A couple quick things I'd, I'd like you to write down. Why should we stop? The first one, because I play it forward. Just write those three words. Not pay it forward, play it forward. In other words, this addiction, this tendency, this thing that you're doing that's destructive or less than God's best, I want you to think ahead to a week or six months or five years down the road. If you keep on doing this, what is it gonna look like? For Moses, Jethro did that very thing to him. He said in verse 18, you and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. I would encourage you to underline that in your Bible right now. It's too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. And Moses, if you play this forward a little bit, things are not gonna go well. And you think a lot of the uh, things that we allow into our lives that if we play them forward are gonna be very difficult. What are the things that we're talking about? We're talking about habits that are harmful. We're talking about acidic addictions that are corroding and corrupting the chapters of our story. We're talking about tenacious tendencies and shameful secrets, dark desires and arrogant asterisks that mar accomplishments and cripple any joyful expression of authenticity. Cynical smirks, damaging daggers of dialogue that cut off the freedom of others, angry outbursts and words that get lodged so deep in the memory of the ones we love that it seethes and festers beneath the surface and leaves a scar of hardened flesh where there was once sensitivity. What are the things in your life that you need to stop? Think about playing it forward. Maybe for some of you, it's overspending. And maybe someday you're gonna get to the situation where your kid's education will suffer because you couldn't stop going out to eat or getting the latest model of that car. Maybe for some, it's alcohol or smoking. You will be trapped into a life where you need it to survive, to be yourself or to have fun. Play that scenario forward. Think about the health of your body. Think about being there when your kids are getting married. What's it gonna look like for you down the road? Maybe for some of you, it's a tendency to gossip. Play it forward. It will return to you and you won't be trusted then by anyone. Maybe for some here, it's looking at pornography or watching inappropriate movies. Scripture promises us that your sin will find you out. And someday you're going to have to look into the eyes of your wife and explain to her why she was not enough for you. Maybe for some of you it's flirting around. Affairs and infidelity, they don't happen overnight. It happens with a series of small, 
bad decisions. Play this scenario forward. And if you don't deal with it and you don't stop it, what's it going to look like? The landscape of broken marriages is littered with people who wish they could just go back and make an adjustment. Maybe for some it's overworking and being distracted when you're at home. Think about Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner years down the road when everybody's talking about what it was like to grow up and dad, you were never there. Or mom, you were always talking on the phone with your friends or always watching those reruns or you were never home. Or even when you were home, you had your phone out, you were on your computer and you missed it. Think about those chapters that could be written unless you act now. Maybe for some, it's being negative and cynical about everything. Maybe you're the kind of person that comes in and you just pick apart everything. You've been picking apart the service. You've been picking apart me. You've been picking apart the music. And that's, in a sense, very easy to do. I could do that probably better than you. I got more negative things to think about and things that we need to change and adjust. And, but man, what if we set that aside? Because if that just snowballs, you're going to end up being a very unhappy person in bondage from your negativity. And you're going to miss out on what God could be saying. Because the news flashed for us this morning, God loves using broken things to give him glory. Amen to that? God is not a God who expects perfection. So the first thing that we want you to think about, play it forward in your mind if you don't stop. Second thing, you don't know what blessings you could be missing out from. You could be missing out on. If you keep on doing this thing, this addiction, this tendency, you're not aware that, man, if that was removed, I wonder what life would be like. If you stopped overspending, what if you had more money to be a blessing and experience the joy of generosity? If you stopped overworking and cherished each moment with your kids while they're still in your house, you could receive the huge joy and satisfaction from relationships. So what we enter into right here at this very moment in the life of Moses in the narrative is what we call a kairos moment. Kairos is a Greek word that means time. There's two words for time. One is chronos and one is kairos. Chronos is measured time. Seconds, minutes, years. Kairos is a significant moment in time, a holy moment moment in time that demands that we make a decision. Do you see that difference? When you look back on your life, maybe you have a lot of these different ones if you really played it out. Maybe some Kairos moments are like rumble strips. On the highway, you're going there and you're just not paying attention or you yawn or you're changing the radio or whatever and all of a sudden, we've all been there, right? Holy cow, that was close. You know, all of a sudden you're that much more awake because you just almost veered off, but you were able to correct it pretty quickly. And maybe you got some of those Kairos moments. Maybe you're filling out your tax return. You're like, ah, it's approximately this, you know. And all right, well, maybe it's not. Wow, that was close. I almost just sent that off. Or maybe with your boss, you're telling a story and you're making an excuse of why the job didn't get done and you came pretty darn close to insinuating that it was somebody else's fault or started down the road of telling a pretty simple lie to excuse yourself and your responsibility, but you're like, no, no, I don't want to do that. I want to get back. And maybe those are small moments. 
Maybe for some, they're bigger than that. Maybe it's more like a guardrail on a road, right? Where you hit it and there's, a, there's some problem, you know, some dents in the fender and that was close, but I'm still okay. And maybe for some, it's those brick wall moments. A moment of decision. Holy cow, I can't believe it. I just went bankrupt. It caught up to me. My spouse just left me. My child just ran away. Whatever the big monumental moment where God finally got your attention. That's what's happening here in the life of Moses. And as I think about my own story, I think about a Kairos moment that was pretty significant. Um, I had just graduated from Bible college. I was dating my girlfriend, my wife now at the time, dating her pretty seriously. And I was hopefully on a track to just be some all-star youth pastor, student pastor somewhere. I had spent three summers traveling around as part of the team from my college. And we were going to all these camps in front of hundreds and hundreds of kids and preaching and leading music and impacting and all of that. And this my senior year, I wanted to do an internship at a big church to set me up to have some great job. So I was in between two of them. I was talking to two different guys. I decided I'm going to go to this church right here. And, um, and everything was in store except for when I got that phone call about two weeks before it was going to begin. And the pastor said, Jerry, I've got some bad news. Things are not good at the church. There's a really good chance I'm not even going to be here a month from now. I'm going to resign. It's, it's coming. Bad stuff going on. You don't want to come here. You can't come here for the summer. I'm sorry. And at that point, it was too late to go to the other one. So, you know, that was devastating. But I'm like, hey, you know what? What if God just wants me to go home to my home church? It's not the most ideal. It's not prominent. It's not paid. It's not glamorous. My church is 30 people. But man, maybe I could do something in my hometown and I can come back and I can minister and I can, you know, make a difference. I can work with my dad. And I called my dad and told him, what do you think? He's like, Jerry, you don't want to come back here. There's nothing for you to do here. There's no, you, we can't do any student ministry. We don't have the room. It's just not gonna work. And I literally, you know, as Becca, I sobbed like a little kid because I'm just like, what, what, do you, what do you want me to do? So I ended up going home. I didn't have much of a choice. And I said, I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna play basketball at the park. I'm gonna meet some kids. We're gonna have a Bible study. I'm gonna be involved in church, playing guitar and playing the piano. Believe it or not, I actually took organ lessons as well. It's true. So I was going to play the organ on Sunday mornings and, you know, it's okay. I can work. I can save money. I can save for a ring. Like God's still going to work. And less than two weeks when I was home, I was playing basketball. I got tripped up, fell on my elbow, completely smashed it, broken in a cast. So now I couldn't play basketball, couldn't play guitar. I couldn't work. I couldn't even drive because I had a stick shift, you know. <laughs> you know? And I just entered a season of loneliness and depression and boredom. And I'm talking to Becca on the phone. She's out traveling on one of these ministry teams that I was on. And I'm just watching the, the days click by, the time click, click by. And I was just bored, depressed, and lonely. And don't you know that's when the enemy strikes. So I find, found myself at the end of senior year, Bible college, headed into seminary in, in, in just a few short weeks and months. I found myself on the computer late at night in my dad's office. And it started out innocently enough, you know, ESPN.com, what's going on in the world? And next thing you know, you do some search for something benign and some image pops up. 
that shouldn't be there? Whoa, that's interesting. That couldn't possibly be double click like, oh, oh, that is. And like your, your heart starts beating and you know you shouldn't be looking at that and you know it's wrong. And there's like this internal struggle because the male American side of me is like, dude, it's no big deal. It's just a girl. It's part of anatomy and life. What's the big deal? And the other side of me is like, what are you doing? You shouldn't be looking at that. That's not what God would have for you. You know that. You've counseled kids against that. You've worked with men that were addicted to that. And I can remember like, you know, back in those days, this is 1997, all right? Like literally the screen went like this. When a picture was coming up, you know what I mean? American Online, no videos. This is all just straight up, slow dial up. But it didn't matter because every one of those images that was coming like that, I'm just having this internal struggle in this moment. Like, oh, I shouldn't be doing this. And it was like the second or third night where I found myself in my dad's office at 11.30 or 12 at night. Everybody else is asleep. And I'm just there again. And this is so bad and I shouldn't be doing this. But my heart's pumping. I can remember like it was yesterday. All of a sudden I'm in there in the dark and I'm on the computer and the screen's right there. And all of a sudden the office door opens. I don't know if you've ever been in that moment where you get caught doing something that you know you shouldn't be doing. I'm like, back, 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 back. You know, turn off the monitor. Hey, what's going on? Hello, who's there? And I was expecting my dad's big shadowy figure. What are you doing? What's going on, Jerry? What are you looking at? It was all dark and I stood up. Hello? And all of a sudden at my feet, I feel fur. It was my blasted cat just rubbing up against my leg, had pushed the door open with such force, I thought it was a person. So I'm like, all right, that's it. I give up, I quit, I'm done, I'm done. I'm going upstairs, kick the stupid cat, and then actually, oh, I'm sorry, actually, you saved me. Thank you so much. God used you, believe it or not, even a cat, God used you to scare the living daylights out of me. And to keep me from going down that road and that, that next morning, I looked my dad in the eye, I sat him down and said, I gotta tell you something. This is what's happened the last two or three nights. I'm so sorry. It was on your computer. I violated your trust and I asked for forgiveness and I'm not gonna do it again. But that was a Kairos moment of decision of something I needed to stop. And as we look at the life of Moses, we see a process here that maybe you can see in your own life. Three things quickly. Number one, you see uh, that, that there was a lovingly, Moses was lovingly confronted by Jethro, right? He said, hey, I see that you're doing good things, but here's something that you need to work on. That was the moment where he needed to make a decision. Number two, we see that Moses was humbly agreeing that this was an issue. And that's a good question right there, right? Is when these moments come, are you humbly agreeing that this is an issue? Because there's a whole lot of other ways that you could respond. You could make excuses. You can get angry. You could point fingers back. But instead, check out verse 24. After, after uh, Jethro shared all these things, it says, so Moses, what? listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses got to the point where he's like, my decisions, 
my inaction, my uh, controlling nature needed to be confronted. And I'm going to listen to what you have to say. I'm going to humbly admit that I am wrong. And the third thing that we see in this process is that Moses brought others into the solution. Brought others into the solution. How important is this? Take a look, backtrack a little bit in, uh, into verse 22. Jethro said, hey, you need to get some other people around you, Moses, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they can decide for themselves, so it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. I want you to take that phrase and I want you to underline it in your Bible, circle it, highlight it on your device. They will bear the burden with you. Leading these people, living a great story, being in essence the savior of the Hebrew people is a huge burden. There's all these decisions, all these conflicts. And Jethro finally said, Moses, stop doing everything yourself. This is a monstrous burden that you cannot carry alone. So Moses agreed. Verse 25, he chose able men out of all of Israel and made them as heads over people, chiefs of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens, and they judged the people at all times. He stepped away from that. He administrated. He stopped controlling. He stopped trying to be in charge of everything. And God blessed it and used it in incredible ways. That idea of carrying each other's burdens is repeated all over. You see that in Galatians chapter 6. Bear one another's burdens. So I don't know what kind of addictions or tendencies or weight is on your shoulders here this morning that you need to stop. But you need to know that every single one of us has a story and that God desires to do something amazing through our story. One of our own here at Northwest has got a pretty incredible story of God's grace in his life. And I want you just to take a moment and watch this with me. The first time that I ever had a drink was in my freshman year of high school. Some kids, you know, I would be thinking about it. How are we going to get some money to get some alcohol to then fund some drinking over the weekend where other kids didn't really have that on their agenda. But to me, that was like now the new agenda uh, for the weekend. So in college, I did really bad with, with class classwork. I had uh, tough classes, plus I was playing football on the football team and I had joined a fraternity. I wound up having to leave that college and lose my academic scholarship because of the poor grades that I know were a result of my not studying and spending more time you know, going to parties and drinking. After I left college, I got into the workforce, was working, had a pretty good job, and I maintained that working for that company for you know 20 years and progressively was successful in that company as a functioning you know I'll, I'll say a functioning alcoholic I, I was able to get my job done but during that time I, I had incidents when I was drinking I did get arrested and um, for a DWI and 
you know, I had hurt some people. Um, when I got married and I was in a relationship, you know, she didn't like to see me the way that I was and she was bringing it to my attention, some of the behavioral things that are associated with an alcoholic and I didn't want to hear it. I just ignored it and I think at that point in time is like I look back on it today that I realized that I would have lost it all. Um, you know, that I was willing at that time to give it all up just so that I, that I could continue drinking. So after having years of drinking in high school, in college, and even while I was in the workforce, uh, it was about in 2004, I had a road trip planned to go up to college with some fraternity brothers, and I went on that road trip, and it was specifically to go drinking, and, and on the third night, it was a Sunday night, um, I talked to Debbie on the phone, and I got a complete sense of guilt and shame over everything that had been going on, uh, all of my drinking and, and um, damage I've been doing in my relationship to, to her and the marriage, that uh, I locked myself in a room and stayed away from my two other fraternity brothers that night. The next morning, I got up and I talked to my fraternity brothers about confessing to them, essentially, I, I feel like I'm an alcoholic and I, I can't stop drinking and I have a problem with alcohol. And uh, they had suggested that I go to Alcoholics Anonymous and that I also pray uh, to God. And the prayer that I was taught was, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. And just repeating that prayer and meditating on that prayer over and over again. So after joining AA, uh, uh, Bible Believing Church, and this is where I really first heard the gospel preached, and understood, you know, with clear eyes now, I am a sinner and I had committed sins and I knew I had felt a lot of guilt and shame over those sins, but now to know that my, my sins have been forgiven due to, the, due to the work that Jesus did for me on the cross. My whole, the lenses that I used to see things through in the past were just completely changed and it made me a new person. So since we joined that church, two, two or three years later, um, Debbie and I were baptized on our wedding anniversary. We both shared our testimonies in the tank together and you know, it was really, really an awesome experience. So I'm really grateful for the, the decision. I know that it was nothing short of a miracle that that decision was made. You know, it's most likely that I still wouldn't be in my marriage, um, you know, like just Debbie, and therefore I wouldn't have my beautiful daughter Mackenzie. And, you know, I just can't imagine what, what things, what life would be like if, that, if they weren't in my life today. My name is Chris, and I'm so glad that I decided to stop. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? That's Chris, and that's my brother right there. And he can look back on that chapter, and tell that story with a level of regret and shame, of course but with a level of honor and glory to God and say, look at that chapter, look at how God used that. Because I decided something that day. And I just wanna close this whole series and it's from Hebrews chapter 12, verse one and two. You don't need to turn there, but be reminded of this, right? The writer says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, you're not in this alone, he's saying. 
He's like, you imagine the whole motif that he's using is a, is a giant race, a giant marathon. And he's like, you're entering into the stadium and we're surrounded by people that are cheering you on. And when we talk about brokenness and weakness and things we need to stop, you're not alone. Abraham had to stop doubting and trusting God. David had to stop chasing his own desires. Elijah had to stop throwing himself a pity party. Jonah had to stop running from God. Joshua had to stop being a few. Be strong and courageous. Told him three different times, be strong and courageous. Be strong. Have I not told you? Be strong and courageous. And what about in the New Testament? Peter had to stop being so impulsive. Peter had to control his temper. Thomas had to stop doubting. Paul had to stop getting discouraged when the churches that he planted failed. And it goes on and on and on and on. But we are surrounded by a cloud of people that are struggling just like us. The writer says, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Another version says a sin which so easily entangles us and trips us up and we're weighed down with burdens that we can't carry. And the motif is you're in a race and you're trying, but you're sweating and you're aching and you're stumbling because something is weighing you down. And the command is throw it off, cast it aside, experience freedom. How? It says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. The author, the author, all these books, all these stories right here. God's the one that was there right in the beginning. Psalm 139, he's writing it. He created your soul. He fashioned you together in the darkness. He's the author of your story, but it doesn't stop there. He didn't just wind you up. Well, here you go. He is the author and he is the perfecter of our faith. That means he's right there alongside us. He's dwelling with us. He is internally living in us. If we're followers of Jesus, you've got him on our side and he's there saying, all right, man, I know it's tough. I know that things are difficult. I know you've got this tendency and this gravity in your life, but I'm here with you. I'm here alongside you and I'm offering the same power that rescued Jesus from the grave is now living inside you. So the cross is big enough for whatever it is that you need to stop. If it's pornography, if it's overspending, if it's compulsive anger, if it's alcoholism, if it's addiction to drugs, if it's a bad attitude, whatever it is, the cross is big enough to let you stop that. And God is inviting us even tonight to take those burdens, take those things and to lay them down and to cast them at the foot of his cross. Why? Because Christ is enough for